And so as we look at this section of Scripture today, I'd like to do it with us first looking at a New Testament gospel understanding of the people of God. And so in Matthew chapter 16, you can still turn there to Nehemiah 7, but I want to read from Matthew 16 real quick, 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says a remarkable statement here. He says, I will build my church. As we think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom work, and the people of God, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, we know that church is not a building. It's not, it's not built with, with brick and mortar. It's built with God's people. It's his people that he will build. Jesus did not say, I will build your church. Unfortunately, we all have an idea of what church should be like. We have different preferences and different wants and different likes. And if you ever find a church that does everything the way you want and like, you probably won't like it very long. Jesus did not say, you will build my church either. He didn't say that I'm going to put it up to you. You're just going to have to figure this thing out. No, he said, I will build my church. And as Acts 2 records the birth of the church at Pentecost, we see that after the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, that he sent his Holy Spirit. And it was the promise that he would build his church. Ian Murray said, The church is most evangelistic when she is least concerned about impressing the world or with adding to her numbers. He will build his church. And when we try to do it our way, we simply get in the way. There's a few things we see from this as, as, a, as a precursor to what we're going to look at in Nehemiah 7. The king builds his kingdom people on the confession of who he is. He builds his kingdom people on the confession of who he is. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the confession that creates his kingdom people. A kingdom people are those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. H.B. Charles Jr. says your greatest confession about Christ should always be the latest confession about Christ. Your testimony about Christ should grow deeper, greater, and stronger as the days go by. So the question remains today for you, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Jesus Christ will build his church the king builds his kingdom people on the revelation of who he is. The revelation, he says, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Meaning that you would not have been able to say this had you not been prompted for you. That he will build his church. Flesh and blood is an idiom for humanity. We see in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's humanity, he himself... Likewise, partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That Jesus Christ had to put on humanity, he had to put on flesh, that he could be the penalty, that he could be, pray the, pay the price 
of the penalty of sin in our place. Flesh and blood does not reveal to us the revelation. It is by the Father. In John 1, 12 through 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He builds his kingdom people. The king builds his kingdom people on the rock himself. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is built on Jesus. Peter would attest to this in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If we try to build our faith on anything other than Jesus, it will falter. This is the church that is built. It's a kingdom people. They are, they are his people that he is building up on the confession of who he is by the revelation that he's given to them about who he is. And now he's going to hold you on the rock of who he is. This is how the church is established. The king builds his kingdom people with authority and purpose. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Not only is he building for himself a kingdom people, but he is sending out a kingdom people with the keys. He sends us out with the gospel message. We have the keys to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So have you spread that news this week to a lost and dying world? Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I give you this New Testament look of the people of God because we're about to look at the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 7. And I want us to understand that God is still creating for himself a kingdom people. And the kingdom people need to guard their worship. As we get to this list, we see that this list, also recorded in Ezra chapter 2, is not the exact same list. These are separated by almost 90 years. Uh, the Ezra list names those who returned from Babylon under Zerubbabel in 536 B.C., and it served as a document to show you who the true Jews were. In Nehemiah, nearly a century later in 444 B.C., the list answers the question, who is available to repopulate the city and provide for temple worship? The question here that many of us will have to wrestle with is this, this is not the same list. There's discrepancies in names and numbers and if that doesn't bother you, it should. Because we hold to the fact that Scripture is inerrant. There's no errors in it. And so when people want to nitpick the Bible and say, listen, it doesn't, it doesn't always match up, then they're going to put different sections like this against you and say, all right, so how do you explain this? Well, the truth is there is no error in Scripture, and there is no error that would, that would uh, affect the biblical narrative of Scripture. It's the fact that years had passed. And these are, the, these are the names and the people that are available to fill the city of God with the people of God. So before we jump in, we will skip through several of the names. So I won't uh, make you suffer through 73 verses of names I can't pronounce. But 
I do want to pray for us that God would speak to us through his word, that he would enlighten us to the fact that we are his kingdom people called to a kingdom work. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that even as we contemplate the work that you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, we recognize that none of us would be here without your work. None of us would have hope. None of us would have future. None of us would have forgiveness. We would all be lost in the darkness and the slavery of our sin. And if it hadn't been for you revealing yourself through your son, Jesus, putting on flesh and dying in our place, we would be lost. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for that gift. And we thank you for your word that we have today. Speak to us through it. Give us a charge to be your kingdom people that you've established for yourself and for your glory. Amen. Kingdom work and the guarding of the praise of God. Let's look at the first three verses. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanai and Hanaah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut the bar and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. A kingdom people guard worship. A kingdom people guard the praise of God. Says there, verse 1, now when the wall had been built, the wall is complete. Now what is the next step for Nehemiah? It's to fill the city with people. But first he's going to set up the doors, the gatekeepers, the singers, and they've all been appointed. And they're there to guard the worship. Because it's a city that's meant to be the, a place of God's presence. They've reestablished the temple and now they've built the walls and now they're going to say, all right, now we need to guard what God has given us. In his book, Does God Care How We Worship, Ligon Duncan says, grounded in the moral law itself and revealed in the first and second commandments of Exodus 22 through 6, is the fundamental indication that God is concerned not only with the whom of corporate worship, but also how of corporate worship. Have you ever thought that God is concerned with whom and how we worship today? As you'll notice, we strive to have a Christ-centered worship. We want to exalt Christ for what he is and what he's done on our, on our behalf. And so we are Christ-centric in the way that we worship. He does care about our worship. Exodus 20, as I just alluded to, 2 through 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Israel, as we know, couldn't keep their guard of worship. They allowed idol worship to take place, and we see by the prophet Jeremiah in 3, 8 through 10, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet 
For all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. It matters how we worship. A kingdom people guard their worship because idle hearts lead to idle hearts. If we're not careful, if we become idle, we'll find ourselves worshiping idols. In pretense means that they return, but not, not completely. They returned with an untruth, with a sham, with a lie, with a falsehood. God knows our heart. He knows whether or not our hearts are inclined to worship. He knows how we entered today to a corporate worship setting. Ecclesiastes 5.1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Offering sacrifices and attending services are useless if the worshipers have no desire to listen to God's word and obey it. Can I say that again? Offering sacrifices and attending services are useless if the worshiper has no desire to listen to God's word and obey it. He knows whether or not we are guarding the worship. He knows whether or not we are guarding our hearts with all vigilance because we are prone to wonder. Don't you feel it? Worship matters to God. So guard your worship. Kingdom people guard faithful worship. B, verse 2. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Nehemiah, it's debated whether this is one man or two men in different commentaries, but he appoints these men as charge over, over Israel to guard the worship. Nehemiah knows that godly leadership is essential for guarding God's people. This is what we see also in the New Testament. As Paul goes and plants churches in every city, he says we need to appoint elders to give, to give watch over God's people, his kingdom people. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is what the New Testament teaches us, that we are to have elders and leaders and pastors and shepherds looking over the flock and guarding the doctrine, watching over the doctrine, praying for them, and teaching sound doctrine. These men aren't expected to be perfect, but they must have a godly character. They must be men who fear the Lord, and it is revealed over a course of time in their life. Godly leaders and elders guard the corporate worship gathering. C, kingdom people guard family worship. Here's where it gets a little personal. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. They set guards in front of their own homes. Let me ask you, who's guarding your home from the easy slide of idolatry? Who's guarding your homes from idol worship? Who's guarding your children's eyes and ears and schedules so that they don't run off and worship other things? Parents, you guard your home by guarding your own heart. Because if you become idle in your worship, you will allow idol worship in your home. As we read the history of Israel, we see that that is exactly what got them exiled. They didn't guard their hearts. They allowed idol worship to come in and they passed it on from generation to generation to generation until it became so bad that God punished them with exile. Second Kings 17, 5 through 17, I'll read part of this to you. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God and had brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by servant and prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe the Lord their God. They passed down idol worship from generation to generation. Warren Wearsby says, Every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction, and God's people must be on guard. So parents, let me talk to you for just a moment. Parents, it's your kingdom work and your kingdom responsibility to guard the worship of God in your homes. Do not become idle. Parents, your kingdom work and your responsibility to protect your children from the evils of society and the sinful traps of this world. Parents, it's your kingdom work and your kingdom responsibility to know what is on your child's phone and what's on your child's device and to set up accountability. It's your responsibility. Guard your home. Guard the worship in your home. Parents, it's your kingdom work and your kingdom responsibility to guard the entertainment that you allow to enter into your home. Parents, it's your kingdom work and responsibility to instill your children with the importance of corporate worship. Parents, if corporate worship is not important to you, it will not be important to your children. They will grow up and just take another further step away from the corporate gathering. Parents, it's your kingdom work and responsibility to disciple your children and teach them the gospel. The church is here to aid you, to help you, to come alongside you, but it is your job as parents. Parents, it's your kingdom work and responsibility to demonstrate to your children a life devoted to God above all else. So let me ask you these questions. Are you the primary teaching influence in your child's spiritual development? Or is the internet, television, gaming, and entertainment a main influencer in their lives? Are your children guarded in their friendships and influences by being surrounded by other families who hold to a biblical principle of discipleship? Or are they allowed to be exposed to families that do not hold to biblical principles or practices? As your children move into their teenage years, let me ask you, who's teaching your children how to pursue a godly relationship or to one day pursue a godly spouse? Do they show discretion in their dating or do they let physical desire dictate their relationships? What is your child learning about biblical marriage? What are they learning about a biblical model for marriage from you? Do they hold to the biblical model of one male and one female Or have they been influenced to accept cultural norms over biblical principles? We are to guard our homes, guard our hearts, guard the worship and the praise of God. And we cannot become lax and idle in this. And I'm not trying to be legalistic in this at all. It's the fact that when we've not stood guard, we've allowed Satan to work his way in. So who's influencing your children's worldview? Is it Christian influence or a a cultural influence? As Josh Josh Brucey says, to sit back and take a passive posture to parenting is to expect unlikely and improbable results 
and receive what you never intended. As parents, we must learn to view life through the lens of Christian warfare. The battle is raging around us, and the devil is playing for keeps. To engage in a spiritual war as a parent is to plan ahead, remain educated, make wise decisions rather than popular decisions. We live in a day of images. Even Google has section completely devoted to images. Instagram and other social media outlets are completely devoted to images. We pass images on the billboards as we drive, and we are bombarded by them through television, magazines, and a multiplicity of other options through the internet. We can't control what images are plastered upon billboards and printed in magazines, but we can control what enters our home. Guard the worship. Number two, kingdom work and guarding the people of God. Verse four, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. God has prepared for himself a kingdom people. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. This means that as they've been coming back out of exile, they've not gone back into the city. They've settled in the surrounding area, and now the question is, who can, who can be in? Who is, who is really God's people? There has to be a distinguishing factor of who God's people is, and so who belongs inside these walls? Well, as we know, it's the people of the promise of Abraham. In Genesis 17, 1 through 8, God decided to create for himself a people. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I might make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations, and for an everlasting covenant. We know that God's people are, the, the God's people are created and prepared for himself because he chose them. And we who are in Christ hold to the same promise. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Just as God chose in himself a people of Israel and the people of promise, he too has chosen all those who are his. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose and his will. Why is this long list of people important? Because they're God's people. These are God's people whom he has chosen, whom he has ordained to be his people. God has a promise for his kingdom people. B, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, Judah, each to his town. 
This is the promise fulfilled. As we read this list of names, as you see this list of names, this is a promise fulfilled that God would not forsake his people. Jeremiah 33, 7-9, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They are to be a people that were a witness of who God is. So Nehemiah is listing the names of those who belong inside the kingdom. Because of the redemption through Jesus Christ, we too have been restored, redeemed, and reestablished as God's people. Just as Abraham held to a promise in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. We too hold to the promise that Abraham held to. Hebrews 11, 7 through 19, 17 through 19, rather. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Isaac hears the picture of the one and only son, that through his sacrifice, that would be the people who are named. This is the people of the promise. Just as Jesus would give up himself, the one and only son, that that would be the people of God's promise. We too hold to this promise, and one day we will stand as a chosen race. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession because of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.9. And one day in Revelation 21, 1-4, we will be made completely new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's important because God's people are his people he has a promise for them, and he has a protection for them. God has protected his kingdom people. God preserves for himself a kingdom people, not by works of the law, but by the work of Christ and the presence of his spirit. Today, we stand as, if we are in Christ as, as his people, not by our own workings, but by the work of Christ. As Galatians 2 20 through 21, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, we see the new covenant come Come to pass, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He has a protection for us. 
In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You can't earn your salvation. It is given to those he has called, those he has predestined, those he has loved, those he has called out for his own purpose. It's God's kingdom people. So let me ask you today, do you know for certain that your name is recorded just as there is a recording of names here? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, that you are his people? A kingdom work and giving to the purpose of God. Verse 66, let's pick up there. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and their female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had, four, they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 6,720. Now some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 dacrics of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. When you read that, you're thinking, amen, right? Amen, that's some good numbers. (laughs) The thing is, is that Nehemiah is recording that God's people are a giving people. God's people are a generous people. God's people have been given so many generous provisions of grace that they can't help but be giving people of grace. The people of God give to the kingdom work of God. Now, some of the heads of the Father's houses gave to the work. Our worship of giving to the kingdom is a direct indication of how concerned we are about advancing his kingdom. You can't escape the fact that you you put your money where your mouth is, right? That's the, if you're concerned about the kingdom, you'll give to the kingdom. As John Piper once famously said, there's only three kinds of Christians when it comes to world missions, zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. Church, I'm going to just say you are giving church. Even as we as elders were gathering this morning and talking, we, we recognize that you are a church that is faithful in giving. We, we are blessed here, and I just want to commend you in that, that you continue to be a faithful people who worship in giving. So thank you for being concerned about his kingdom work. Be the people of God, live to worship the king. 
They lived to worship the king. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. They were, they were worshiping God. They had moved back in. They were living there. Our worship of living for the king is a direct ind- indication of how invested we are being in his kingdom. Our worship is more than just a Sunday morning. In fact, if you do the math, there's 168 hours in a week. And if all we carve out is one hour of worship, then that's less than 1% of our week. If this is it, if this is all we do, that's less than 1%. Our lives are to be lives of worship. As we go, we are to worship. We're to give our lives for the kingdom because we are a kingdom people. We can't afford to spend less than 1% of our week worshiping. So the good news of this is Jesus is the greater Nehemiah who builds his people, guards his people, sustains his people, equips his people, and calls his people to be kingdom workers. Jesus guards because he's the good shepherd. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus equips. Jesus is the vine. In John 15, 5, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus calls. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have much to be thankful for. Because if we are God's people, he's established us. If we're God's people, he's protected us. If we're God's people, we have a promise that one day he will dwell again with us. And until that day, he's given us the down payment, his Holy Spirit.